0: Good morning, gathering church. It is again an honor to be sharing today's message with all of you today. It's awesome to finally see faces. Uh, Last time, I the first time I preached was to a camera, but this time it is uh, seriously gratifying to to see all of you here. (laughs) It is one. Today's text is one of my favorite portions of Paul's epistles, so I am quite excited to. Dig into, into it with all of you and expound the riches of God's mercy that we find in, in God's Word and so that we can grow in love for Him and in love for one another. But so far we have learned of Paul's explicit warning regarding the preaching of a false gospel and the defense of his calling and his credentials as an apostle called by Christ as well as the acceptance by the other apostles. We also learn of his opposition toward uh, Peter's hypocrisy and and his teaching that salvation of both Jews and Gentiles is by faith alone and not by birth. But let us quickly remember the structure that Trevor gave us in his introduction to the letter. Uh, Galatians is divided in three parts. The historical lesson, chapters 1 and 2. The theological portion, which is chapters 3 and 4 and the ethics or the application of um, the former in chapters 5 and 6. Last Sunday, Matt began to expound the theological portion of this letter where Paul goes all the way back to Abraham's promise um, to expound the theological uh, relationship between the promise and the law, as well as its distinction. He also introduces the relationship of the law and the promise and he ends the first half of chapter 3 by saying, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree, so that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, so that we might receive the promised Spirit through faith. But today we go deeper into Paul's he- theological explanation of the distinction between the promise to Abraham and the law. And how at the same time, these two two are not contradicting each other, but they achieve the eternal purpose of God in the redemption of his people through Christ Jesus, who is himself the fulfillment of the promise and the only one who obeyed that law perfectly, down to the last dot. We will examine this text in three points. First, the superiority of the promise over the law and their distinction. That is verses 15 through 18. Second point is the purpose of the law in God's redemptive plan. Verses 19 through 25. And the third point is the sonship of all believers by faith alone. Verses 26 through 29. So please read with me. To give a human example, brothers, even with a man-made covenant... No one annuls it or adds to it once it has been ratified. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say into offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring, who is Christ. This is what I mean. The law, which came 430 years afterward, does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God so as to make the promise void. For if the inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by promise, but God gave it to Abraham by a promise. Why then the law? It was added because of transgressions, until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made, and it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. Now an intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not. For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But the Scripture imprisoned everything under sin, so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Now, before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then, the law was our guardian until Christ came, in order that we might be justified by faith. But now faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian, for in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. Let us pray. Dear Heavenly, gracious Father, Lord, we come to you acknowledging that you are a holy and righteous God, and that we depend on you completely for the revelation of your word. Please, Lord, send us your Spirit so that we might understand what the Apostle is trying to teach us here. O Holy Spirit, reveal your word to us and help us see the truths of your mighty word. We pray this in your son's name. Amen. In light of the upcoming anniversary of the Protestant Reformation, which is in 20 days, October 31st, in which children or immature people will be celebrating Halloween, but the men and women will be remembering 503 years of the Protestant Reformation, it would do well for us to remember what God did through the German reformer Martin Luther. After a life-changing experience, after he thought he would die, Luther vowed to St. Anne, the patroness of the uh, miners, that he would give up everything as as, as long as she intervened for his life. To fulfill his vow, Luther joined the strictest monastic order, the Augustinians. There, he learned of God's law and his holy character, as well as the sinfulness of men and his utter inability to obey the law of God Perfectly. He was also a brilliant law student, and he understood that God's law demanded nothing but perfection. For years he fought and toiled to live up to the standards of God's law to no avail. He eventually became disillusioned because he understood that as an unrighteous man, he could not possibly obey the law to the letter, and that he stood under the judgment of God daily. He later reminisced of his days as a monk, and he wrote, When I was a monk, I wearied myself for almost 15 years with a daily sacrifice. I earnestly thought to acquire righteousness by my works. I tortured myself with prayer, fasting, vigils, and freezing. The frost alone might have killed me. See, as a law student, Martin Luther read the Law of God... And he understood its purpose. It revealed to him that he was a sinful man. And that he violated God's commandment every single day. And that the only payment that he deserved as a sinner was condemnation. While he understood its effects and promise, he was still blind to what the law points to. Namely, to trust in Christ Jesus and believe his gospel. So that by believing, Christ's righteousness is imputed to the sinner Thus, justified before a holy and righteous God. Obviously, Luther did not come to justification by faith alone on his own. He read and read and reread Paul's epistles until the Spirit of God opened his understanding and his mind to see the beauty of what Paul meant when he quoted, The righteous shall live by faith. And we have established that this theme is uh, Paul's theme throughout the entire letter of the Galatians. And chapter three will be a theological defense of what the Judaizers against what the Judaizers were teaching us. Luke tells us in Acts fifteen one, they, they taught, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. They were clearly adding to that promise by saying, Yeah, you are saved by Christ, yeah, you are saved by faith in Jesus, but you must also obey the law of Moses, otherwise you cannot be saved. They were also teaching against Paul's doctrine of justification and many others. And they created dissension, they created distrust and opposition against the apostle Paul. But ultimately, what they were creating was opposition against Jesus Christ and his gospel. So in order to rectify the accursed religion that the Galatians were starting to accept, Paul had to go back to Abraham, he had to go back to Moses, and the fulfillment of both of those, namely Jesus So let us read verses 15 through 18 once more. It says, To give a human example, brothers, even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it, or once it has been ratified. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say into offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring, who is Christ. This is what I mean. The law which came four hundred and thirty years afterward does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God. so as to make the promise void. For if the inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by promise, but God gave it to Abraham by a promise. I think we can certainly understand Paul's main point in these verses. He begins by illustrating the promise of God to Abraham, using a human example, or as other translations worded, everyday life examples. The word covenant in verse 15 in the Greek can mean just that, covenant. But it also means will, as in a dying man's will or testament. This is pretty straight, This is pretty straightforward. Once a man has established, when he has sealed and ratified his will, no one can add to it or invalidate it. If no one can do such a thing with a man-made covenant, how can a covenant or promise made and ratified by God be added onto or revoked of its validity? To add to a will or testament would certainly be dishonoring once the man's death has ratified and sealed it. It would be evil to deprive those beneficiaries from the fruits of the hard work of their father. It is like telling a widow, you must now work for your, as your husband worked to earn what he has already given you. The promise would no longer be a promise. It would be a burden. And Paul is trying to remind the Galatians that they no longer need to work toward the inheritance because, because it is already theirs. It is theirs by faith, as it was to Abraham. The promise couldn't be void. And so far, Paul has referred to the Abrahamic covenant as the blessing, whereas in verse 16, he says the promises or the promise. In the immediate fulfillment of that promise, it was physical, certainly uh, Abraham received a numerous descendants, and his descendants certainly received the land of Canaan. We just finished the book of Joshua, and we studied how the Israelites conquered Canaan. But the ultimate, ultimate fulfillment of that promise was spiritual. Paul argues that Scripture did not say seed, referring to many, but one seed, who is Christ. Therefore, the ultimate fulfillment of Abraham's promise was found in Christ alone and no one else. As Dr. Thomas Schreiner rightly explains, quote, the covenant with Abraham was characterized by promises, signifying what God would bring to pass by His grace. The term promises calls attention to God's work rather than to what is attained through human effort. Unquote. Paul's whole argument revolves around this. He would bring, God would bring his promise to pass in spite of Abraham and in spite of his people, in spite of everything they did. God would remain faithful and he would keep his promise. All Abraham did was believe in the faithfulness of the Lord to keep that promise. And although he never saw it in full fruition, his offspring came and fulfilled it, namely Jesus Christ. But we can go all the way back to Genesis 3.15. When God declared a curse on the serpent, He said, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. So this was God's redemptive plan all along. It was to make a people for Himself. He made a covenant of grace that He would fulfill not by works from the people and not conditioned but by something, but by he made it by grace alone. And this is the distinction between the Abrahamic covenant and the Mosaic law in Exodus 19 through 24. Paul says in verse 17 that the law which came 430 years afterward does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God so as to make it void. So here's the Crux of it all. The law was meant to be temporal. By coming 430 years after the promise, the law would not only be superseded by faith, but it would also be its servant. The Judaizers taught that the law supersedes the promise. Works supersede faith. Because the law was added afterwards, then they thought that it must mean that God gave it to make their faith Perfect. But the law meant works. It meant burden. It meant curse. The law established a conditional covenant. And verse 18 says, For if the inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by promise. Because it is impossible for a man to work and justify himself through the law. As we learned from Martin Luther's journal entry, he said, I tortured myself with prayer. With fasting, with vigils, with freezing. And I almost died. So the law can only bring death. The law does not give eternal life, but God gave it eternal life to Abraham by a promise. God did not promise Abraham an inheritance to then go back on his word and break it or add to it with burdens and conditions. God gave it to Abraham by a gift, and his, and his inheritance would be Christ Jesus. a Numerous people, all the nations of the world, blessed in that one God-man. A sinner's salvation can only be by trusting in the cross for the forgiveness of his sins. By faith alone can the Lord be his, his salvation and his righteousness. So his application to point one, we think of this and, and we certainly marvel at how sweet is the truth to thirsty hearts. How beautiful is the thought of relief from the burdens of life and in the heavy guilt that comes from the law. It is not by our performance that we obtain entrance, entrance into eternal life, but by the sacrifice of Christ on that cross. As Christians, we rejoice that the reality of our salvation is not dependent on deeds done by us, nor by rituals and sacrifices, but by faith in Christ alone. So let us hold fast to that truth, beloved. But let us also remember something. Let us remind something. Let us remind ourselves of something else. That as sinners, how many times are we tempted to add to that promise? How many times do we make the drink that Christ freely offers bitter? How many times have we added weight on our own backs and on others? We condemn along with Paul and say, Oh, foolish Catholics with their faith plus works theology. Oh, foolish every other religion in the world. But more often than not, we deem the gospel insufficient to save sinners. And we do so by adding to it ideologies, theories, political parties, voting the right way, and even traditions that have nothing to do with the gospel. Are we aware of that happening today today in the church all around this nation and in the world? Maybe it is happening, happening in our own lives, in our own testimonies, and we are not aware of it. But Christ's true church will preach the true gospel. From beginning to end, the message that alone saves men and women from the curse of sin, the alienation from God, and their judgment under God, must be that Christ alone saves and faith alone justifies. If the law itself does not add something missing to the promise in the gospel, how can we possibly think that we can add something to it? So let us not be quick in judging others who may be seem, who may seem confused or even wrong. Unless we are sure that what we are proclaiming is the message that Christ died for the sinner. And faith alone can justify that sinner. Again, eternal life is not better revealed by some elitist theory or ideological cocktail, nor by a political leader promising things that tickle our preferences, but by the proclamation of Christ and the fullness of His person. That Christ Jesus is Lord, and as Lord, He is ruling right now. He is King now. Everything that happens and everything that has happened this year is by His providence and by His grace we will not dismay. The world and the flesh and the enemy are always constantly reminding us that we can never be right with God. But listen to what Jesus said in John sixteen thirty three. He said, I have said these things to you, speaking of the last times, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation. But take heart, I have overcome the world. So let us go to the second point. The purpose of the law. Verses 19 through 25. In this section, Paul will answer two questions that may arise from his first point. And I love the way Paul is always able to anticipate the rejection and the questioning from his opponents. And he even anticipates our own questioning of what he's teaching. But it is fair to acknowledge that these questions will not be exhaustive in answering the role of the law in every aspect of the Christian life. As pointed out by a commentator, in this context, quote, Paul was not dealing with a question of the role of the law in the life of the believer, but here he was dealing with another issue, namely, what the function of the law is in the history of salvation. Unquote. In other words, What is the role of the law in terms of God's purpose for it in the redemption of believers? The role of the law in the Christian's life will be addressed later on. But for now, we ask, why was the law then added? What then was the purpose of the law? If faith alone is able to justify a sinner before the Lord, why would God give the law to Moses? See, the Judaizers were saying that Paul was erasing the law completely from the picture of salvation. That Paul was teaching that as Christians, we don't need to obey the law at all. We can just do away with it. Their accusation caused so great a stir that Paul had to defend his his apostolic call and affirmation in chapters 1 and 2. But his answer was quite direct. He said it was added because of transgressions. And to have a clearer understanding, we will let Paul himself expand on it. Romans 3.20 says, Through the law comes knowledge of sin. Romans 4.15 says, For the law brings wrath, but where there is no law, there is no transgression. Therefore, through the law, men are convinced of their sinfulness. Going back to Martin Luther's life, he was able to recognize himself as a sinful, uh, as a sinful man with utter inability to please God because his law condemns sinners and sinners are not able to live by it. In verse 10, Paul quotes Deuteronomy 27, 26 and he says, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. So we can conclude then that through the law, Man is not only convinced of his sin, but his sin increases as he is not able to live by the law. If someone is ignorant of the law, he still has no excuse before God. But how much more wrath is stored up for someone who knows the law and still lives against it? Romans 2.5 says, But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. So we see that the purpose of the law was to point to something better. Not how to make humanity right with God. Nor was it to simply restrain sin, though it does that too. But in the context of the larger picture of salvation, the law was meant to point to sinful men and women to Christ by condemning them and increasing their transgression before the Lord. And the second part of Paul's answer in uh, in verse 19 points to that truth. He said, until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made, sinners would be under the captivity of the law. Again, we have the language of verse 16, the offspring, which we already know is Christ Jesus, His birth would mark the beginning of the end of the reign of the law. He would burden himself by the law, and he would obey it perfectly so that all believers would be free from its burden. And also so that his righteousness, his obedience, be imputed unto those who receive it by faith. And then verses 19b and 20 are really hard to understand. So don't worry, I won't I will not spend too much time on it because there are 250 to 300 interpretations of just those two verses and we will not be tangled in any of them. So as Alistair Begg says, the main things are the plain things, and the plain things are the main things. Get to the point. (laughs) But the second question that Paul addresses seems formatted as if it were Paul questioning the Judaizers. He says, is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not. For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. The Judaizers were saying that eternal life was to be achieved by holding faith on, the, on one hand and by holding the law on the other. It was as if it, the Christian was walking on a tightrope, holding a stick with weights on each end, both perfectly balancing the walker as he tries to reach his destination. That's certainly a really attractive view of the law. But, it, but Paul, thankfully Paul here is saying, no. You can't do that. Because sinful humanity cannot possibly obey the law to reach eternal life. For there is no law that frees the sinner from his righteous condemnation. The law is not both life and death. It can only be one. See, the inheritance of life came only by the promise. And to say that the law gave life was contradicting the promises of God. So Paul clarified. He said, Scripture imprisoned Everything under sin, so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. And here we see the involvement of Scripture in the life of regenerated sinners. The entire counsel of the Word of God points toward Christ. The Word is piercing when it accuses the guilty. When it wounds the mighty, when it humbles the proud, when sinners find that everything they thought they were means nothing without Christ, they become wretched beggars. Sinners are led to seek relief from their guilt, rest from their burden, ointment for, for their wounds, and living water for their thirst. Jesus told the woman at the well in John 4, If you knew the gift of God, namely Jesus... And who is it that that is saying to you, give me a drink? you You would have asked him, namely Jesus. And he would have given you living water, namely Jesus. And after a long discussion between our Lord and the Samaritan woman, he reveals to her the sin that reigned in her life. He said, for you have had five husbands, and the one that you now have is not your husband. But he does not leave, leave her lingering in her guilt. He tells her the water that I will give him who believes in me. Will become in him the spring of water. welling up to eternal life. She had found the Messiah. She had found the offspring of Abraham. And he told her. He said I who speak to you. Am he. And verses 23 through 25 in the second point are the final strike from Paul to show the role of the law and the plan of salvation. He explains that the law held everyone, everything captive. And he uses two illustrations to show us how the law functioned before faith came, before Christ established his new covenant. The law then functioned as a prison, since all men are captive and imprisoned by it. And a guardian to show that justification is by faith in Christ. In his use of prison, Paul is saying that the captivity or the confinement under the law cannot possibly be escaped from. We know how terrible of a place prison is. It is heavily guarded by armed officers. Some are in the middle of nowhere. It has large walls and fences that serve to keep the prisoners in. And it has 24-hour surveillance. We may argue that some have escaped, but not from God. Not from the law of God. When When you go in, you are meant to stay in until you serve your sentence. You are in bondage to it, and you cannot possibly taste freedom. And when Paul refers to the law as our guardian, he speaks in terms of a tutor. The word in the Greek is... Pedagogos. And from that word we get pedagogues. You can also notice that pedagogy comes from there. But also, it can also be translated as tutors. Because in the Greco-Roman world, a tutor was a slave usually... ...whose sole responsibility was to look after his master's child... ...until this one came to maturity. They would teach the children good manners, good behavior... And make sure that they actually attended school. They would, they would also discipline. They, they had permission from the parents to actually discipline. And some were cruel. Some were oppressive. Some were mean. Others were loved. But they, the, the point is that they were to exercise their duties until the child became an independent Adult or a mature adult. So before my parents got married, they served as teaching volunteers in an orphanage that was opened and sustained by the church we attended in Nicaragua. Soon after they got married, they went back to that orphanage to serve as the guardians of the female section in the orphanage. They eventually became the uh, general directors of the entire facility. But I spent the first 10 years of my life there, and throughout that time, I was able to notice the role my parents played in those kids' lives. They served as their guardians, as their tutors, and when the situation saw it fit, as the one holding the rod for discipline. But the children loved my parents. And I was able to understand why at a very young age. Their lives had been marked by abuse, loss, neglect, vices, utter poverty, and instability. Some of them did not want to be there. And they were not to be blamed for it. But others were thankful to have three meals a day and a bed to lay on at night. But one thing they knew, and we all knew for sure, and that was that the orphanage was a temporary state. My parents were temporary parents. They knew that maybe, maybe, one day a family would come and take them away from that place. Or they would get too old and forced into the world and find a family of their own and a job. I saw many get adopted, and those were some really great, joyful times. But I also saw many of them pack their things and leave. It was tough, because I knew that the only thing those kids wanted was healing, stability. They wanted love. And, they all, and for it all, they wanted it to be eternal. Similarly, the law was not meant to be our prison. It was not meant to be our guardian forever. We discussed already the temporary nature of the Mosaic Covenant and how it plays an important role in the bigger picture of redemptive history. But its jailer and custodian roles have ended. They ended with the coming of Christ Jesus, the seed of Abraham, the second Adam, and the glorious high priest that obeyed the law for us. We are no longer under the law. We are no longer under the rule of sin. We are now free in Christ. And finally, we get to verses 26 through 29. And I would like to read them again. It says, For in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you were, as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither June nor Greek... There is neither slave nor free, there is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And you are Christ's and if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. So Paul's first Paul ends his first theological discourse in chapter three by applying it to those who through faith have joined their place in Christ. This finally shows why the law was not only temporary, but it could no longer serve as a prison and a guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God. So Paul is now declaring that the Galatians are not only saved through faith in Christ, but that in him they are all sons of God. The veil was torn and the dividing wall between the Jews and the Gentiles, namely the law, has been crushed. There are no more conditions to belong to God's people. He is now the father of Jews and Gentiles who, through faith, come to Christ and seek the forgiveness that only Jesus offers. Verse 27 reveals that everyone who by faith has come to Christ is baptized into Christ to symbolize the putting on of Christ. All who have been baptized in faith have made a public proclamation of the transforming nature of the gospel. <clears throat> in this very Paul, verse, Paul compares baptism to the putting on of Christ as one who clothes himself with the new self. The ordinance of baptism is then a vivid picture of Christ's death and resurrection. The immersion of the believer means that the old self has been crucified with Christ. And his righteousness, Christ's righteousness, now clothes the new believer. It also clothes all who have put put on Christ, namely, all who have by faith received Jesus as their Lord and put their trust in Him alone. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Right after the racial tensions began back in May of this year, two brothers of this church, my wife and I, decided to go downtown and offer a message that was utterly different from the one shouted by the press and social media and prominent pop culture figures. We saw everyone with signs, so we decided to take some of our own. Ours did not have catchy slogans or insults. One of them had John 14, 6, which reads, I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. The other one had Galatians 3:28. And our goal was not to create discord, nor was it to condemn people with verses. We simply wanted to see that. We simply wanted the people to see that sin, division, hurt, deep wounds could only be healed by the power of Christ's gospel and his utter destruction of any barrier standing between people of different ethnicities, different social and economical, economical status, and even different sexes. We expected conversations, and we expected people to ask us questions, and we thought we were ready for it. <laughs> but one man approached the two brothers that were with us, and he read the text. They had Galatians 3.28. After observing them a couple of seconds, I saw that his indignation was evident, and he asked us about our goal being there. Why were why are you guys here? After some exchange, he asserted something that was merely mirroring the society at large. He said, Jesus has no place here. Christianity has no place here. See, he assumed that we offered, that what we offered simply had no power to cause change, to create unity, to pierce and heal. He assumed that something else was needed and that Christians were the last people to offer such solution. And here in this verse, Paul's objective is not to obliterate ethnic differences, or advocate for some colorblind approach to ethnicity. But his argument in the first distinction of verse 28 is that ethnicity no longer matters in the salvation of equally sinful men and women. The Judaizers advocated that as long as the Galatians remained uncircumcised, they did not belong to the people of God. But Paul said, no, you belong to Christ, therefore you are God's people. You are God's sons, not by making yourselves part of a people, but by being incorporated through faith in Christ into God's family by the work of God. So the gospel not only reconciles and unites us to God, but it also unites us to one another. It unites us regardless of skin color and cultural backgrounds. And one of the best images of that is all of us partaking in communion as one body, as one people, as all sons of God. And my prayer is that the gathering church goes out and actually reaches out to people that are different from us. Because the need of the gospel is universal. People of all races need it. People of all social ranks need it as well. And both men and women need it. So that once sinners come to Christ, once they put on Christ, their identity is renewed. It is changed. It is transformed. In a secular culture that pushes more toward confusion and identity, more disorder, more chaos, the gospel invades and bothers such thinking that by revealing to every sinner, sinner that only in Christ Jesus, one can be at peace with God and be made new. Just like the kids in the orphanage. Those who have come to Christ were all seeking To find an eternal family and an eternal home and an eternal father. Abraham believed in the promise given to him by God. That in him all the nations shall be blessed. Abraham believed the gospel and was certain that one day peoples from all over the world would come together and sit with him and glorify the Lord as one. As his bride... And as his inheritance. So the next applications will be for points two and three. First, what does this mean to us as Christians, part of this local church, and united through Christ to other Christians? See, the unity that Paul speaks, the, the unity that Paul speaks of has no strings attached. That is by anything other than faith in Jesus Christ and His gospel. We get the spiritual family that we get. We get him so that we can have a chance to exercise our freedom from the law. To love and cherish the good of those who are in our family. In our spiritual family. We have been freed from the works of the law to obtain salvation... In order that we may not possibly think that those who do not do as we do or think as we think are not saved. Today, we may disagree on political issues, and trust me, it is not easy, but no one said it would, it would be easy. But let us not bound each other's consciences on the basis of traditions, theories, ideologies. And political arguments. But on the basis of Christ. And everything he taught in his word. The whole counsel of his word. Better yet let us seek peace. Let us seek the love of one another. That once characterized Christians. In a pagan empire. That questioned the reason for their love. For one another and their neighbors. The Roman empire would question. How is it possible that the Christians. Are treating our people better than we are. So if we disagree, let's seek conversation. Let's seek to have a clear understanding of what your brother or sister is saying and where they come from. So that you do not fall into temptation to sin against a brother or a sister in Christ. Ultimately, let us not be mere reflectors of the tendencies of the world, of the tendencies of the culture. Because the world has plenty to say against the word of God. But the Word of God alone has a truth about the world. Instead, let us seek Christ. Let us mirror Him and be more like Him. Loving in truth, seeking to honor, and glorifying the Lord. Secondly, what do these points say about our approach as Christians to those unbelievers around us, and those in our jobs, in our families, in our government? As we apply these verses into our own lives and in our own church, let us think of the bondage in which our neighbors are still in. Think of the people of Portland who prefer the coldness of the prison of sin and the ruthless guardian over the gentle restoration and healing of our Savior and our Lord. Weep over the the desire of many to not see Christ as their Messiah, but reject Him by Their doings and with their mouths curse him. Pray for the Spirit of God to work through our testimony, as imperfect as it may be, to cause people to thirst after our living water. Again, if we find ourselves in disagreement with someone, let us address it with peace and grace. Let us not be quick to condemn, but quick to forgive. Pray for those in office every office. So that the Lord guides them, uses them, and that He he alone may be glorified through them. So finally, if you are not a Christian but you are tuning in, listen to what Christ offers. Give ear and think of what Paul has written. Our God does not demand works for you to come to Him. Simply come. Repent of your sins and believe that Christ can lift them away. Receive the freedom, not only from the law, but from sin and its bondage. Come, find a father, and in him, come and find a family. If that is you, you can reach out to any of our elders, or or anyone in this church, really, including me. We would be more than happy to speak to you about everything you have heard today. And let us leave with this in mind. The law no longer holds us, the law no longer condemns us, the law no longer judges us. For we have a Lord who is Jesus, who has freely died and leaves to save us. Let us pray.